Science. Science Po. Going to sleep was always not a guaranteed thing. The meeting was convened late at night or very early in the morning. And so we constantly felt something could happen the next day. What Keeps You Up at Night is a podcast produced by the Sciences Po Journalism School and the Paris School of International Affairs. Here, we bring you personal stories from political leaders around the world. How do they balance their responsibilities? How do they deal with their doubts? And how do they manage their priorities? With those questions in mind, we want to dive into the hopes and dilemmas that come with being in charge. I am Morgan Annex. And I'm Michal Kubala. And this is What Keeps You Up at Night. Kyung Hwa Kang, you are a South Korean diplomat and renowned political leader. You served as the foreign minister between 2017 and 2021, the first woman at this position in your country. You started your career as a journalist in South Korea. You then held various high-ranking roles at the United Nations, including the position of Senior Advisor on Policy to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Throughout your career, you have been a vocal advocate for human and women's rights. For a continuous engagement in that field, you were named the 2006 Woman of the Year in Korea. Today, we will talk about how you personally approach the challenges that come with such demanding duties. Welcome to our studios at Sciences Po Journalism School. So, Madam Kang, mm-hmm. what did a usual night look like back when you were foreign minister? The usual nights, of course, they were extremely short. (laughs) Uh, The days were extremely long and very early starts in the morning because there were so many issues to to juggle. Um, And also internal management issue with a ministry that is known to be very closed, very cliquish and very male dominated. And I wanted to change that. So a big part of my tenure as foreign minister had to do with changing the culture within the ministry. And I think I did that quite well. I think women found it much more comfortable to be a part of the team at various levels in the ministry. But of course, in terms of the issues, uh, North Korea continues to be our biggest challenge and it's increasingly nuclear and missiles capable. Uh, And that was the key um, issue that we tried to work with the United States and other partners, key partners to to get North Korea on the track of denuclearization. Uh, I think we were able to produce some key milestone moments in that approach, such as the the two, actually three summit meetings between the South and North Korean leaders, and of course, the very well-known U.S.-North Korea summit in 2018, and the next summit in 2019, unfortunately, ended in failure without an agreement. So that approach has been stalled for a while. Uh, but I think at some point that needs to get going again. So that was quite a quite a handful. And in s- sort of semi-retirement now, I enjoy the leisurely morning hours so much more than I used to before. Did it happen often that you would spend the night at the office working till late? Yes. Well, I tried not to do that because that then puts the whole ministry on hold. And I said, do your work and enjoy the family. So if I had work to do, continue to work, I, I, I took it home. Um, you know, you work with a sense of mission for the country, but you also need to have a life. So the work-life balance was a big thing for me. And I think that was quite a shock to the 
ministry staff because the male foreign ministers up to that point did not send that message. It was, you need to be here every day, every night. And so they were used to that. But the the small change that I made uh, and sending that signal and, and practicing it myself, I think the staff found that very refreshing. So... Was there a specific decision that you remember taking mm -hmm. as foreign minister that mm -hmm. actually kept you from sleeping? Oh, well, I think the biggest, again, this is more of the management issue, harassment, sexual abuse in the ministry was just, you know, brushed under the carpet traditionally. And of course, that was hugely discouraging for women's staff in the office. So I made sure that every incident that came to light Uh, was properly dealt with, properly investigated, and and the discipline meted out in accordance to to the abuse. Um, so, but it was hard because it meant I needed I I was disciplining. I was sending some to court, friends that I had known for a long, long time. Uh, but in the end, I, I had to put the cause before the personal friendships and disciplining staffs in particular that I knew well uh, was, I think, the biggest difficulty of my my time. Before, you know, women couldn't even report, although there were processes to report, uh, to be protected, and the, but the women were not using it because immediate conclusion was they would, they would not get the proper protection and the proper investigation. But, you know, I think My insistence on this throughout the, the my term has, has established a culture where you, you can resort to these processes and get justice. How did it make you feel when, when you were, you say it was such a male-dominated mm -hmm. environment and, and you were now heading this? Mm -hmm. how, how did you feel when you were in this position? <laughs> That's that. I, need, I do what I needed to do. And I think the younger generation of staff, both women and men, appreciated that. So it wasn't just the, the young women in the ministry that was uh, very supportive of my approach to leadership, but also the young men. You spoke of the tensions that you had to face uh, with uh, your neighboring country, North Korea, during mm -hmm. your tenure. Mm. Is there any particular night um, mm. that you remember where you had to struggle with, with such tensions? Well, I think throughout the first year of my tenure, North Korea was continuing to shoot missiles, um, continuing provocations from North Korea, including a sixth nuclear test. And so we were constantly on edge. Uh, we, the president would call for an emergency National Security Council standing committee meeting or a council meeting that he himself would preside over. And these were like almost a weekly thing. And so Going to sleep was always not a guaranteed thing. The meeting was convened late at night or very early in the morning. And so we constantly felt something could happen the next day. You still go to sleep. You have to. But um, the sleep was not all that comfortable during those days. Would you say what was there a sense of of lacking security when you were going to sleep, for example? Yes. I mean, absolutely. Because um, North Korea... Uh, prior to that year of very active engagement was our security threat. And it's, it's, you know, you look at the map of the country, it's just, you know, 30, 40 miles away uh, from the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, which is the heavily armed place in the whole world with troops, heavy armory lined up on both sides of the DMZ. 
And anything could have happened. And there were incidents in the past that could have flared up into major incidents, and major incidents did happen. Uh, but part of the outcome of the 2018 uh, dialogue was a military agreement between South and North Korea, by which the two sides said, we will not do anything that could accidentally cause confrontation along the DMZ, both on land, in the air, and along the sea area. And that has largely kept, um, even though the current government, there's messages coming from inside the government that they may can this very important agreement. I think despite the rising tension between North Korea and South Korea at this point, this is one thing that has to be kept because it's something that has kept things cool along the DMZ. And, And until we go into the next phase of dialogue, this has to be preserved. In fact, in September 2018, Mm -hmm. you were part of the delegation that accompanied South Korean President Moon Jae-in to to a three-day summit in in Pyongyang, Mm -hmm. which is the capital of North Korea. Mm -hmm. And this actually made you the first foreign minister on an official trip Mm -hmm. to the country. Could you tell us a bit about what it was like to spend the night in in North Korea. What what did you actually do? Did you get to visit the city? Well, yes. And this was the first time that anybody in the foreign ministry becomes a part of an official delegation in dialogue with the North. North Korea insists that South and North Korea are not foreign countries. We are of the same people. We are in a special relationship. So they do not seek foreign ministry to foreign ministry ties. They do not seek foreign ministry voice in inter-Korean delegation. But the president was insistent that the foreign ministry had to be a part of this because our job is then to take whatever comes out of the inter-Korean dialogue and sell it to other partners, coordinate, consult with the Americans, the U.S. partner. But the visit to North Korea is very scripted. Um, you are kept in this guest house. Uh, you are escorted um to various meetings. So we didn't get, you know, spontaneous interaction with everyday Koreans. We could talk to people who came to serve us uh, in the hotel restaurant and things like that. But all the people that we met were government officials. Um, And uh, that was also fun. Uh, I mean, but every day, the the only time that we got close to North Korean everyday people were the car convoys driving through the streets and you would have you know people lined up on the street I think they were mobilized huh but one thing that really stuck in my mind was as we were driving in the city proper the streets are all lined with crowd you know crowd. but once you moved out of the city vicinity on our way to the airport for example then you immediately run into farm areas. And, and I, you could see people, young students, walking and reading at the same time. And so the aspiration for educational achievement is as, as intense in North Korea as it is in South Korea. When you would get um, back to your hotel then at night, would you sometimes think about all the like like you say, everyday North Koreans mm-hmm. that you could have spoken to mm-hmm. and, and that you couldn't, mm-hmm. actually. Yes, of course. Of course, behind the fancy bouquet, the banquets and the wonderful food, I did think about, okay, what's daily life for the average Korean? Because of all the sanctions, because the country's closed economy, uh, very much reliant on trade with China, 
the, the economy is very, um, it's not thriving. Uh, some say there could even be, be a starvation. So you do worry about what is life for the everyday Koreans beyond this luxurious, very scripted hotel setting. And it wasn't just me, it was all of our delegation. Do you then maybe remember what you ate, if, if there was anything different or similar? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, Koreans are famous for kimchi. Uh, but traditionally, the North Korean uh, recipes for kimchi are the most delicious, I think. And of course, with lots of people having fled to the South during the war times, and my father included, although he's passed away, uh, there are North Korean recipes for everything. And it, to taste that there, as made by North Koreans, was quite, uh, quite unique. North Koreans are very famous for their cold noodles, and that was delicious. But I found the North Korean version of the kimchi um, without, the, without the hot pepper. It's called white kimchi, uh, made with cabbage, and put in a, in a piece of big pear. They would cut the pear, dig out the, the meat of the pear, and place the kimchi inside it. And it was so delicious. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to What Keeps You Up at Night with Kim Gua Kang. So you'd say that there's still a certain sense of familiarity being in North Korea. Yes, because we are at the end, we've been separated for decades, but at the end, we're the same family. I mean, same people. We share the same language, although the language has evolved in slightly different ways. Uh, Koreans use a lot more foreign terms, for example. Um, But, I mean, there's no problem understanding each other. So terms may mean different things, so that could cause a slight bit of misunderstanding, but everyday conversation is not a problem. And we share the same history. It's so natural for the country to be heading back towards unification. But because we've grown separate ways for so many decades, I think, and this was the approach of our government, unification immediate is unrealistic. In fact, if, if we make that the goal of our policy, that could be more problematic. So our goal currently has to be bringing about a system where the two sides could interact with each other on a regular basis. There will be people-to-people -people exchanges. Families who have relatives in the North would be able to go and visit. They would be able to do the same. And we would work towards that kind of a peaceful coexistence and and after a certain period of peaceful coexistence. And then maybe will both sides feel comfortable enough to really aim for unification. And, that, that's a, and, and I think that's the right approach. How did you feel when you then came back to, to your home country, South Korea? Do you think this was an experience that kind of changed you? Um, I think so. I think so. Summit meeting was held in Pyongyang. Um, but then after the successful summit, um, successful to the extent that the North Korean leader, after the summit, stood before the press and said in his own voice that North Korea is committed to complete denuclearization. And to, for the world to hear that from his own voice uh, was, I think, quite momentous. Could you tell us maybe some more of the things you, you saw, you smelled, that uh -huh. you heard, maybe that? that you remember from that visit? For example, my president addressing the North Korean crowd of 50,000 people, this first time 
a South Korean president was speaking directly to the North Koreans. And his message of peace, his message of uh, one people, one family, you know, uh, that, I think we all almost cried when we, we, uh, he was delivering that message. Um, but on our way from the airport to Pyongyang on our first day after arrival, the convoy is going through the streets. There are people lined up all throughout the trip. And my president decided to stop the car and get out and create the crowd because that's natural for him. He always does that. Um, so... But the North Korean leader was so shocked to see that because he keeps his distance. He's untouchable from the everyday people. So the first lady asked my first lady, how do you do that? And of course, she told her, well, we do this all the time. And after that, you could see the North Korean leader and his wife getting closer to the people. Very, very structured, very scripted. But nonetheless, I think he realized he learned from my president that, you know, closing the distance with the everyday people is a good thing for leadership. You've tackled immense responsibility during your tenure. And one of your longtime battles is the fight for gender equality. Yes. Was there any moments where you, you felt powerless? I don't think you could afford to be, feel powerless because if you feel I can't do anything, then you're, you're no longer the leader you need to be. So I don't like to be uh, angry. I don't, I don't blow up my temper easily, but there was a moment when I just absolutely lost it <laughs> because some behavior of a, uh, of a colleague that we needed to work closely in another ministry was absolutely abusive, a bully. Um, and when things climb, uh, built up toward an ultimate climax of a behavior, and I, I won't go into the detail because it's very embarrassing, but seeing my, my staff going along with that, letting him get away with it, I said, don't let him get with it. Record your conversation, bring it to my attention. And this has been going on for a long, long time. But they, could, they couldn't directly confront him. And, and one of his behavior was just absolutely beyond the pale. So I just exploded to my staff. I said, how can you get, let him get away with it? How can you act like a slave in his presence? I'm not here to serve slaves. I'm here to empower you. So for the whole Ming, I was just absolutely venting. But I think that was the right thing to do. Uh, I didn't like doing it, but that was... So that was, that's my approach to, to change. You, you push, uh, you do it in a in non-confrontational way, but if there is a moment when you absolutely need to confront, you have to. And then when you're out of office, when you're leaving in the evening, you go back home or to your official residence, mm -hmm. how do you do it to prevent yourself from constantly dwelling on, on, on this issue or other things that are going mm -hmm. on in the world? I try to eat well. In the official residence, I had a small running machine, so I tried to make myself physically active, uh, healthy. But I guess in the end, you cannot get away with with the issues, twenty four hours a day. I think, and this is the responsibility of high level government officials all over the place. I think because there are so many issues, you know, thrown at you at the same time. The ability to keep your cool and not buckle under pressure is a big quality that is required of people in leadership positions these days. 
reflecting on the moment when you ended your tenure mm -hmm. in, in 2021, what did you do actually on the first night when you were no longer foreign minister? Celebrated with my family. Um, you know, my family, my children were a huge part of my support, my my mental moral support uh, throughout these difficult years. My three kids now all grown up adults. Um, so we we um, they 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 prepared a small family party for me, and my daughters gave presented me with a new pair of hiking shoes because I love hiking. And I couldn't do that while I was minister. So I said, Mom, here's here's a new pair of hiking shoes. Enjoy. So I thought that was very sweet. Is there any moments where where you still experience insomnia, maybe because of the things you've seen during your tenure or your position when you were uh, at a UN? I think generally speaking, and this includes my time at the UN, at the UN, I was... I dealt with human rights and humanitarian assistance. And usually that means going to the most awful places around the earth where human rights atrocities happen, where people are needing life-saving assistance. So you travel to really the most vulnerable, the most devastated places around the world. And none of these places have gotten better since then. They've all continued to degrade, whether you're talking about Syria, the DR Congo, where I have a good friend. Um, and, and now we have these big wars happening. Um, so I feel like the world is in a period where confrontational conflict dynamics are overriding the dynamics for peace, dialogue, reconciliation. So this is the general sense of worry that I have about the world. And so... I feel like my time in office were, looking back, were the good times. <laughs> at that moment, we felt, you know, at that moment, you feel, oh, there's so much problem and, 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 and tension. But looking back upon those times now, it feels like those were the good old times. Mm -hmm. And the good old times, there was a lot of people suffering in the good old times, but there's a lot more today. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us, Kyung Gua Kang. And to our listeners, thank you for being with us. If you've liked this episode, feel free to leave us a comment and a five-star rating. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to access all new episodes. Until then, take care and sleep well. <laughs>